just having a way to hold yourself accountable that you will hold space to have these thoughts and to have these conversations, that's the best thing that you can do. Hey everyone, Emily Abadi here, bringing you another installment of Hurdle Moment from Hurdle. For today's episode, I am chatting with Taylor Ray Almonte. She is a trainer at Rumble Boxing, a Reebok-sponsored athlete, co-founder of an anti-racism wellness program called Activism. We'll get into exactly what activism is in today's show, but This is a really special conversation that we are having today about racial justice terminology and just the intersection of race and wellness. Let me be Taylor's hype woman for just a second, first and foremost. We connected for the first time when I was working on an article for Self at some point last year. And ever since we first did so, I have just been drawn to her passion, her electric personality. We have since become Insta friends and have now IRL plans. Like I'm just totally on her wavelength. And I think what I respect the most about her is her passion for just being authentically herself and showing up the best possible way that she can to serve her community. It's something that I can align with. It's something that I feel like is definitely in my values wheelhouse. And she's not taking on easy subject matter. For Taylor, she has made it her mission to be a social justice activist, to be the person that helps people have sometimes difficult conversations. And I am just so grateful that she is lending her expertise to the Hurdle community today in this episode. I say it toward the beginning of our conversation, but my goal with Hurdle has always been to have important and sometimes tough conversations and to bring important topics to the forefront of what I offer on the feed. And so as we are in the middle of Black History Month and as I continue on my personal journey of allyship, this felt right to offer at this point in time. I do want to bring you this discussion uninterrupted today. So before we get into it, I do want to thank my sponsor at Beam. Beam is a Boston-based CBD company that is making waves in the wellness industry. Founded by two athletes who have been on the show, Matt and Kevin. You can listen to their story in episode 96. I'll link to it in the show notes. These guys are on a mission to empower you to live better. They make a bunch of really awesome THC-free CBD products for better balance, performance, recovery, and sleep. I myself cannot get enough of their dream blend. It tastes like a cinnamon hot chocolate. I make mine with a little bit of almond milk and some hot water, sometimes a scoop of collagen. And it's the perfect way to wind down at the end of a long day. In it, it's got melatonin, magnesium, Rishi, L-theanine, and of course, their Beam Nano CBD powder. You've gotta get your hands on it. Head on over to beamtlc.com and use the code HURDLE at checkout for 15% off today. Again, head on over to beamtlc.com, that's B-E-A-M-T-L-C, 
hurdle.com. Use the code hurdle at checkout to get 15% off your order today. Taylor's sponsor over at Reebok also has an awesome deal for you guys. They want to bring you 40% off full price and sale items. Now, some exclusions apply, and this is only available for 100 uses and good for one month from the date that this episode goes live. Head on over to Reebok.com. That is R-E-E-B-O-K.com. And use the code HURDLE at checkout for 40% off full price and sale items. Again, that's HURDLE at checkout for 40% off full price and sale items. Some exclusions apply. And I'll put those exclusions in the show notes. I am also partnering with Reebok to give away one pair of their new Nano X ones. To enter to win yours, I'm not going to promo this on social media. This is just a little social experiment to see how many hurdlers are really in the groove here. All you've got to do is rate and review the show in the iTunes store and send a screen grab of this to hello at hurdle.us. I will be choosing a winner for this giveaway on Friday, February 19th at 9 a.m. So again, if you are listening to this episode and you want your chance to win a pair of the new Reebok Nano X1s, rate and review the show in the iTunes store and then send me a screen grab to hello at hurdle.us. And that's it for now. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I am chatting with Taylor Ray Almonte. She is a Reebok-sponsored athlete, a trainer at Rumble Boxing, co-founder of anti-racism wellness program, Activism. How you doing, girl? I am great. I'm super excited to be talking with you, honestly. Oh, honestly, we only want honesty here on Hurdle. I'm, you know what, I'm super excited to be talking with you for a number of reasons. I want to tell you face-to-face that my focus with Hurdle day in, day out, as time goes on, is to bring important conversations with thought leaders to my audience. And all of my listeners are certainly active people, but as we all know, there is so much else that is going on in our day-to-day life, especially over the last... 365. And I am having this particular conversation about social justice and racial equality with you because you have found this really amazing and beautiful way of marrying our physical well-being with anti-racism education in a way that I have never, ever seen before. Yay. I love that. That makes me so happy. I feel like, honestly, so many folks over the last few months have asked me about why I started doing that or how I started doing it. And realistically, I just, I'm a trainer and this was something that was really on my heart and that I felt super compelled to start talking about. And I thought, well, here's where I am. So just going to put it together right where I am right now. 
right here, right now. So first things first, talk to me a little bit about where you hail from, because I know right now you're in Brooklyn, but where did you grow up? Give me a little bit of your backstory. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a town called Brick in New Jersey by the shore. Um, Both of my parents are amazing. They both immigrated when they were kids. So my mom's Puerto Rican, came from Puerto Rico as a kid. My dad is Dominican, came from Dominican Republic as a kid. And yeah, I lived there with my older sister, Danielle. And I feel like it definitely shaped a lot of my identity or my confusion around my identity, um, growing around a predominantly white community and just feeling a lot of confusion and a lot of conflict as I grew up, which I think definitely influences my work now. Tell me a little bit about your relationship with health and wellness growing up. So as a kid, I was the least athletic person you've ever seen in your life. I was all about that doctor's note that I would make last the whole school year so I could avoid doing gym class. And I just never saw myself as an athlete. I always sang. I always acted. um, I danced, but I never was running the track, playing, you know, varsity sports, none of that stuff. Something I was thinking about lately is that growing up, I never felt proud of my body. I felt like it was something that I always wished looked different. And whether that meant wishing I was white, which was absolutely something I wished as a child, or wishing I was thinner, wishing I was shorter, wishing I looked different. And I feel like now being a trainer the most important thing to me is helping others feel proud of their body because this is our home more than the four walls that are around you every day. Like this is where you live. And I think that's something I didn't find until much later. That's so interesting to hear you say that there were times that you wish that you were white. Did you grow up in a predominantly white area? Yeah. So all of my friends were white and I definitely felt So something I talk about all the time is I've been wearing um, extensions in my hair since I was 14, and I've never not worn them in public. It took me until several months into dating my my now fiancé to even show him what I looked like without extensions because I felt so different and othered and ugly. Uh, And I always wanted to look like my friends, which were all white, every single one of them. And that was kind of the only example of beauty that I saw around me. And I felt like that was all, you know, that was all I wanted to be. So then talk me through coming of age and getting to a place where you felt more comfortable in your ethnicity. Yeah. So I think Uh, It was definitely a learning experience. I went to NYU for college, which was the greatest decision ever. I had decided I wanted to go to NYU when I was six years old, and that was the only school I applied to. And it was absolutely all I hoped it would be. And so while I was in college, I got to meet a lot of different people that I'd never been exposed to before. And it was really during that time that something that I always was super conflicted about was My mom's Puerto Rican, my dad's Dominican. At home, we're speaking Spanish, we're eating Spanish food, we're listening to Spanish music. And so that was the culture that I was um, immersed in. And I would go to family gatherings and look around and I had cousins that were um, white presenting with blue eyes and blonde hair. I had cousins that were five shades darker than me with super curly hair. And that's kind of what it's like to be a Latinx person. But 
I was always really confused because people would see me and they'd say, oh, you're black. And I would think, no, I'm Puerto Rican and Dominican. And I didn't really ever understand as a kid that you can be what I identify now as Afro-Latina, which I'm black and Latinx. I'm both of those things. Being Puerto Rican and Dominican, both as being indigenous, Spanish, and African. And I was not really clear on that or where I fit in. So once I, you know, went to college, was older, got to meet tons of people and talk to them and say, okay, what does this mean for me? You're Jamaican and you identify as black. You're Haitian and you identify as black. What is that experience for you? Because I didn't know what it looked like to be black. And I felt like it didn't look how my life looked. Uh, so as I've gotten older, I've been able to really claim that as part of my identity, that I can be all of those things. Do you find that this connection and inquiry period, the one that you went through in college, it's kind of an ever evolving and continuing process for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think even more recently being more outspoken since the kind of social and civic reckoning that's been the 2020 Black Lives Matter movement, um, I definitely question all the time, should I be the person on this platform? Should I be the voice that's heard? Because I think something that is also very apparent to me is that I'm light skinned mixed race, attractive, thin, able-bodied, college-educated, middle class, and all of these things do put me in a position in which my voice is often going to be the loudest when you look at a group of marginalized individuals. So I feel like I'm constantly always checking in with myself and with the people that I trust to kind of better continue to shape my identity and how that moves in the world. Like you, I am also trying to effectively communicate uh, different topics to my audience so I can relate to you in that you're just trying to do it in a way that you feel like will be effective and beneficial to the people that you're trying to reach. Yeah, absolutely. So talk to me then about the conception and development of activism. And first and foremost, what is activism? Activism is an anti-racism wellness program. And essentially, um, I was looking back at the first class that I taught. George Floyd was murdered um, in late May. And in early June, I had tons of classes scheduled. Um, this is like mid-pandemic. Everyone's loving like Instagram live classes, virtual classes. So I had tons of virtual classes scheduled on Instagram live. And I just reached out to all of the people I was supposed to be on their platform and was like, I must speak about this in some capacity. I just feel called to do this at this moment. And I think when people talk to me about what led me to this moment, like being an actor, I have a double major in English, being a trainer, being a marginalized person moving in the world. I feel like all of these things were kind of preparing me for this moment, um, being able to use this platform for this purpose. And so I went into my first class and I was like, okay, well, we're going to talk about racism a little bit before we box. And I was super nervous. And I was like, these things don't flow together as seamlessly as I wish, but uh, there's nothing else to do but for me to bring my whole self. And I think that's something that was often missing for me in many different spaces, not coming in as my whole self. There's a term called co code switching. And what code switching means is that essentially I'm bringing different facets of my personality to different groups in order to be more widely accepted in those spaces. And I felt like 
okay, well, I'm going to bring the whole thing today. And I found that so many people were receptive and I found that there was no way that I could use this platform not for this purpose any longer. So um, Kira West, who's my co-founder of Activism, um, is one of my really good friends. And it's so funny because we had only met once in real life before we started this program together. Everything else was on social media and Zoom and FaceTime and all that. And she reached out to me and she was like, we're both being super outspoken on social media. Is there something that we can do together? She's a wellness blogger. I'm a trainer. And, and how could we kind of make something out of this? So within two weeks, three weeks, we launched our first program um, in October of last year. And it had about 50 people. And essentially the whole point of the program is that racial justice can be incorporated into your daily life. So we have five action steps a week, something to read, watch, listen to, support, and share. And then we have five wellness steps a week. And that could be something like drink water as soon as you wake up, make a meal with whole foods only, um, go for this jog or this walk while you listen to your podcast this week. Um, It could be a workout. It could be a live Zoom class that I teach to the group. And essentially, it's to realize that One, movement really helps you process your trauma as a person of color or a marginalized person. And movement also really helps you to kind of free yourself up from being so in your head. And then to see that these action steps only take 10 minutes, 15 minutes a day. And you could do this every day. You don't just have to do these long tasks, like read this massive novel and that be your only education. I think some of the criticism over the popularity, so to speak, that came hand in hand with the Black Lives Matter movement last summer was that everyone was saying, buy this book, do this thing. And White Fragility was the number one bestseller. And so many individuals were speaking up and saying, how many people actually read White Fragility after they ordered it on Amazon? And so I love what you're saying for two reasons. One, because you're articulating how it can be a daily uh, practice that you can integrate and it doesn't have to feel maybe overwhelming or potentially intimidating. And also this point that you made about movement being something that helps us like deal with our feelings and then also process information, regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're trying to process. I don't think there's a single person listening to this right now that would not co-sign that statement. No, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. Another reason that I wanted to have you on here today, aside from the fact that I was excited for you to expand upon activism and give us the lowdown is because you did something leading up to Black History Month that I really admired over on social. When you started to dive into a lot of different racial justice terminology. And the reason why I loved the way that you executed on this, because I believe that there are so many resources available right now. uh, And I do want to, again, thank you for taking your time to, to show up and be an educator, because I know it can be a time consuming thing. But what I loved about the way that you were going about it was that you were speaking in a way that I could totally relate to and breaking it down to me, it felt like one-on-one in a way that I was like, wow, I actually understand what we're talking about here. And I think that's so important because for some, and I won't lie, like myself included, this can definitely feel intimidating because at times it's like, I want to be so in the know. I want to show up 
in the correct way. I want to speak in the correct way. I want to inform others in a capacity that feels true to who I am in a correct way. So to have someone like you informing me in a way that made me feel like an equal and not like you were talking down to me, I thought that was so helpful. Yeah, absolutely. I feel like when we have the language to talk about these complex topics, not only are we more likely to engage in the conversation, but we're more likely to actually reach someone else because we have the actual words to say what we mean and to not be overwhelmed by the by the mystery in our head of how to unravel um, what we actually want to say. So what I would love to do here is dive into a few of these terms so that we can uh, hopefully demystify some of the perhaps confusion that is lingering out there when it comes to some of these words. I'm going to pass these reins over to you. Where do you think we should start? Yeah, so I love this. Something I mentioned earlier was that I'm an English double major, and I just love language so much. I feel like it has (laughs) so much power to really just transform our experience. So I am very hyped for this. Um, The first place I want to start is just the difference between prejudice, discrimination, and racism. I feel like often these words get interchangeably used. And something that's super important is that when we talk about race, there is a sensitivity, whether it's as a white person that doesn't want to say the wrong thing, a white person that feels defensive, a person of color that feels that they um, don't need to be educating someone else in in a day-to-day conversation. Um, There's a lot of sensitivity here. So I feel like a lot of time folks specifically with the term racism, they feel really triggered when we say, oh, that experience in which a black person said something racially insulting to a white person, that's actually not racism. They feel, yes, it is. Like that was not an okay thing to say. That was upsetting. And no one is invalidating that it was upsetting or not acceptable, but we're saying it's a different word. And I think that's what's super important, that it's just a different term. Just like if something was turquoise and you said it was blue and someone said, no, it's actually turquoise because we have a word for that. And it's a different word and that's okay. And so, um, the, the kind of basis of those three terms is going to be prejudice. And the word prejudice is a baseless negative preconception toward a member or toward a group. And so it's a thought, it's a feeling, and it's something that is not necessarily acted upon. It's something that you might believe deep down or something that might color your perception of the world. When that prejudice is then turned into an action, that's discrimination. Discrimination is a verb. Discrimination is something that is done, unfair and unequal treatment to an individual or to a group. So that's prejudice, that's discrimination. And then racism is going to be prejudice plus power. So power dynamics are super important. And power here is defined as the authority granted through social structure. So we know that the social structure is upheld by white supremacy. And so the social structure at this present time, when social structure is constantly shifting, but at this present time, racism can only be enacted by the person that holds the power um, tied together with that prejudice. So I feel like that's a great place to kick it off. It's a good place to kick it off. I love the way that you articulated discrimination being a verb 
I think that oftentimes like that extra layer of explanation is what really made me relate into what you were putting into the into the world last month and of course in the months leading up to that. So then for a shift here, I think it could be good for us to then talk a little bit about tone policing. Yeah. So tone policing, I think, is so important and critical toward being an ally and toward continuing any sort of anti-racism journey. Tone policing is a diversionary tactic, and it's used when a person purposely turns away from the message behind someone's argument to focus on the delivery of it. So an example of tone policing would be if someone says, I'm so fed up with this shit and I don't want to deal with white people anymore. And a white person might think, I feel attacked. I feel upset. I feel triggered. I feel that this is an unkind way to verbalize this sentiment. I feel that I'm being attacked in this moment when potentially maybe this is a friend, let's say, that you're having a conversation with. Um, and, And that becomes the focus. And I think that what I mentioned before about the privileges that I have of being a college educated middle class person is that maybe I have, I have, for example, access to therapy. I've been going to therapy for five years and that has allowed me to be able to process trauma in a different way that maybe someone that doesn't have access to therapy. I also put myself in a position as an educator. So the way in which that I'm going to express my feelings to someone might be different. But I think what's so important is to realize that marginalized people have a reason to be angry. They have a reason to be traumatized. They have a reason to be upset. And so if the words that someone uses make you less than comfortable, I think it is up to the person that is trying to learn to be able to say, okay, from from what you just said, I'm hearing that you're sad. I'm hearing that you're traumatized. I'm hearing that you're heartbroken. I'm hearing that maybe I've let you down as a friend. And that is really the beauty of tone policing. It's turning it away from feeling offended at the delivery of something into really grasping the message that's behind that hurt. And it's definitely necessary because again, when someone is traumatized, wounded, and oppressed, they can't be expected to be eloquent all the time. So that would go hand in hand with emotional labor. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, again, like I said, I'm putting myself in this position. I love I was so hyped to talk about language because it's really something that is I have a passion for and I'm putting myself in this position. So when folks ask me a question in relation to this, I've put myself out there in this way. Whereas just because you have a black coworker doesn't make it appropriate for you to go to them and ask them to teach you about something. Luckily, we are in an age where we have Google and we just have all the resources at our fingertips. And so there's not really a need to put that pressure on someone else. Uh, So emotional labor, when you really think about it, it's just when a person must constantly manage their emotion in order to make someone else feel comfortable. It goes definitely hand in hand with tone policing. It's about the work of Think about like if you're in a fight with someone and there's something you really want to say, but you know you shouldn't say it. And so you're like talking yourself down in your head. It's that kind of feeling that you have to get yourself together in a way to make the other person feel comfortable when maybe your comfort should be put at the forefront. Wow. I'm just like sitting here absorbing a lot of this. And I think 
this is helpful, not just when it comes to conversations on activism and racial justice, but also just like in our everyday life and understanding like where you can sit in discussions with the people you care about or just, I mean, how you can sit in discussions in general. Yeah, absolutely. I think about that all the time. I think about how I've tone policed someone that was telling me any number of things that was hurtful or traumatizing to them. And I'm like, oh, I didn't really like how you said that to me. And I think absolutely exactly what you said. I feel like it can be used in a lot of, of different scenarios. On the tone policing note, can you have a constructive conversation about the way that the two of you were communicating? Because that's what I would hope to do. Realistically, it's the... I feel like it definitely depends on the relationship and it depends on the circumstances. Like my fiance, Richard, he's Chinese, Korean, and Puerto Rican. He identifies primarily as Asian and lives in experience as an Asian American and is more tied to that culture. And so in the beginning of this kind of moment where I started really speaking out on racial justice, there were plenty of things that we didn't see eye to eye on. And I would sometimes lash out because I was exhausted of speaking to people maybe in this way in my public life. And so in my private life, I was just did not have the energy to hold my emotions back. And I think it took time because I think what you're looking for when you're lashing out, at least me, I can't speak to all black people, obviously, or all marginalized people. But what I'm looking for is someone to reach their hand out and say, I believe you. Everything that you're saying is true. Everything that you're saying is uh, verified and validated. And once I feel that, it definitely is easier to be able to have a more calm conversation in which I don't feel that I'm being attacked. Is there anything else I can say or do for public-facing Taylor to make public-facing Taylor feel more comfortable or accepted? (laughs) I feel like I definitely feel a lot more comfortable now. I think it's just over time learning, you know, where my, where I need rest and where I need, you know, to take, take a moment. Yeah, fair, fair. Okay. I want to dive into two more terms before I let you go. The first term I want to dive into, microaggressions. Yes, microaggressions. Ooh, it is such a buzzword in these times. Such a buzz. I'll give you kind of a more dictionary definition of what a microaggression is and then kind of dive into a little bit more. I feel like as I learn more about these terms, I kind of have more thoughts to offer. So a microaggression is a commonplace verbal or behavioral example of racism. It's perpetuated often, and you will see this in literally every single definition of microaggressions, that it's often perpetuated by well-meaning people or well-intentioned people. And I think it's so interesting that that language is used so much in the like dictionary definition of this word. When we talk about microaggressions, there is nothing micro about them. My entire life, my entire childhood, I would say I experienced microaggressions every single day, whether it was someone throwing rocks in my hair to see if they would stay in. It could be a behavior or or a verbal example. So throwing sticks in my hair to see if they would stick in my hair, or if it was um, someone telling me that my food was weird because it was you know, rice and beans or something that my parents had made me. Um, 
microaggressions are not micro. They are the tiny, tiny cuts that you experience every day that result in a massive wound as a marginalized person. And when I say marginalized person, that includes anyone that's at the fringes of society. Those are Black people, Hispanic people, Latinx people, queer people, trans people, fat people, old people, people with disabilities, folks that are cast to the side and not seen as the ideal. And microaggressions are are hurtful and they are ongoing because we see them as something that's super disorienting for the person that's experiencing them. When someone says, can I touch your hair? And they reach out and, and touch my hair as a child. And for me to turn around and say, that's racist, the uproar that I receive is, I just liked your hair and I was doing something nice. I was giving you a compliment. And I think we really need to strip away the layers of our society that say racism is too tough of a word. I think we need to call something racism when it's racist, when it is making me feel othered it is not acceptable. And I think when we use words like microaggression, sometimes it minimizes the damage that is done when when someone experiences this kind of thing. So I would say uh, while microaggression is absolutely a term that's used and, and a valid term, I feel like I am much more of the mindset that when something is racist, we can call it racist. We don't have to shy away from saying, oh, it was a little racist. It was a microaggression. It was just not too nice. We don't have to sugarcoat it. Words are here for a reason. They're here for us to reach out and use them. And I think racist works just fine. (laughs) Hot take. Okay. And so then the last word that I want to discuss with you here today is allyship. It is something that I myself have been really striving to do better. It is something that I've been trying to educate myself on. And so I think that it's a great way to bring us home here. Absolutely. So my favorite definition of allyship is an active, consistent, and arduous practice of unlearning and reevaluating. And allyship is essentially to be right there at the forefront with those that are marginalized. Some of my favorite tips for being an ally are believing people, which is something I, I referenced earlier, believing people, validating their humanity, validating their experience. And along with that goes learning consistently. If someone tells you something that maybe is completely out of your of your understanding, something you've never experienced before that you couldn't even fathom happening to you, that doesn't mean it's not true. It means just you have been lucky enough to not experience that. And so it's your job to then go away and learn what that person was talking about, what that means. Because going back to emotional labor, it's not their job to educate you on how how our society functions as a as upholding white supremacist ideology. It's your job to say, wow, I've never heard anything like that. I'm going to go away and find more. So believing people, learning consistently, absolutely being willing to make mistakes and to apologize for those mistakes because there's no way to uh, to be perfect and there's no but there's also no way to make positive change unless you really go out there and try to have these conversations and practice what you're what you're learning. And the last thing is really just sharing that knowledge with others. So you being the person to call out your friend, you being the person that doesn't minimize, 
there's so many memes that are like that racist uncle that you're going to see at Thanksgiving. Like, don't be the person that minimizes that. Be the person that says something. Share it with your family. Share it with your coworkers. Share it with your children. It has to be something that's integrated into your life. Yeah, allyship, again, it's it's that active and consistent part that is really the most important. What excites you about where this conversation is going right now? I feel like what definitely excites me, but also somewhat puzzles me, is that it is so at the forefront. And I think a lot of people are listening that might not have listened before. And I feel like that is super exciting. I feel like it has brought a lot of hope and it has brought a lot of possibility. I think that it's also sometimes a conflicting feeling for me because I see folks that were at the forefront of racial justice 50 years or 100 years ago and how their lives were threatened or even taken for speaking out. And so it definitely makes me feel pretty honored to be in a position where I can speak freely about this and have people actually listen when I know that so many people before me risk their lives by saying these very same things. So I I do feel hopeful and I do feel like a lot of people are paying attention. As your efforts have picked up and you have become someone who is more vocal on these issues, has your movement practice changed at all? My movement practice has changed a bit. Something that's always been really important to me is boxing. And for me, boxing is such an outlet. Not necessarily a lot of people think, oh yeah, you're getting out like your aggression or your rage and you're hitting something, but that's not really what it is. To be honest, I'm, I don't really find myself a very rageful person. That's not really where I go first. And so it's not really that part. It's more like when I'm boxing, when it's me and my coach, like I can't be thinking. I must be present or I will get hit in the face. <laughs> so I feel like that being present and and also kind of being in community with my coach, who I absolutely adore, is, is something that's very meaningful to me. Um, and I've definitely started having a lot more grace with myself on days that I just kind of want to like roll around and do some stretching stuff and like not do a hard workout. I'm like, yeah, absolutely. You deserve that. And that's that's also something that's kind of new for me. How else have you been implementing self-care for yourself over the past, let's say, 10 to 12 months? And on this note, something that Tunde from Peloton said this week on Hurdle that I want to bring into the fold here is she asked, what happens when you change the phrase from self-care to soul care? So how have you been taking care of your soul over the past 10 to 12 months. I did listen to that episode with Tunde, <laughs> so I love that for me. I think something that was really important to me was kind of segmenting my day between when am I being an activist? It cannot be all the time. I cannot be on and I cannot be engaging in these difficult conversations that I'm not just an outsider like looking in, like I am part of this community still experiencing these hardships. And so it's really just 
this, when I'm at my desk in this way at this time, this is when I'm doing this work. And when I'm not, I'm just Taylor. I'm not Taylor with any expectations or any title. And I think the absolute best self-care for me that I highly recommend is just sitting down, existing. (laughs) That's it. Like, I get in my head when I have a self-care day, I'm like, first I do this, then I do this. I need to buy this product. I need to do this thing. And I've realized just like sitting down, doing nothing, being alive, realizing I'm human and my feelings will come and go is the best thing I could do for myself. Finishing us off here for someone that wants to continue to stay informed and continue to practice allyship and do good, what would you say to them to help them progress on this journey? First and foremost, it's really the step of looking inside of yourself and thinking about what are those ugly things in there? When I see someone that is X, Y, or Z, fill in the blank this way, and I feel maybe a thought like, oh, I wouldn't be their friend, or I wouldn't want my child to be like this, or I wouldn't want to know that person. Those are really ugly things that are really tough to face. But I think really taking a moment and just acknowledging that is kind of the first step. And and really thinking about what are those like crevices in there that we don't really let the light shine in. And as soon as you acknowledge it, you let some light in there. Really just taking that time. And then the second part is just finding something consistent, which is why we started activism to really show that you can do this every day. I have a weekly anti-racism newsletter that I send out every week. There's tons of newsletters that you can get. There's one from Equal Justice Initiative that you get either every day or every month that I absolutely love and recommend. And just having a way to hold yourself accountable that you will hold space to have these thoughts and to have these conversations, that's the best thing that you can do. One piece of advice that you would have offered the tailor in July of last year? To not rush through the beauty and the accomplishments and the uh, success that I've found in these moments, whether it's truly reaching someone in a, a, a part of our activism program or the messages that I've received after teaching these classes. Oftentimes I think about how do I reach more people? How do I do more? What constitutes success in this area? And a lot of times I feel guilty that I'm in this position of of privilege in the, in these sort of ways. And how can I do more? Cause there are folks that are suffering so much more than me. And I feel like I would give myself the advice of don't be so hard on yourself. You're doing, a, you're doing a lot and you should enjoy that you are, are moving in this way. I love that. I know that every month activism donates proceeds to a spotlight organization. And this month it is. Avenues for Justice was our uh, partner for our last program. And they are absolutely amazing. They're an alternative to incarceration program. So young folks in the city between the ages of 13 to 19 that would potentially be put in prison, they really take them under their wing and help them to kind of rehabilitate back into society. And 90% of the people that go through their program never commit a crime again. So 
absolutely love that, that organization. Well, I am excited because I'm grateful for your time and I know that the hurdlers are grateful for it as well. So to thank you, I will be making a donation to Avenues for Justice on your behalf. Um, I am really, really grateful just for your friendship. And I have a I have a big feeling that a lot of the hurdlers are gonna be reaching out to you to say thank you as well. Yay. Thank you so much for having me. I feel so good when I can help folks feel a little bit more able to engage in these conversations because that is the first step. And having the words to talk about it is the first thing that you need. How do the hurdlers keep up with you? How do they follow along with you? How do they get involved with activism? Give me all of the details. You can find me on Instagram, my whole full government name, Taylor Ray Almonte, my website, taylorrayalmonte.com, where you can subscribe to my anti-racism newsletter. There's a little bar right on top of my website that says subscribe here because it ain't a trend, honey, because it's not. You need that education every week. And I I think that's it. Just Instagram and website. I am over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.